Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. And welcome to Out with Susie Ruffle. This is Series 4, Episode 6. Before we begin, as always, I want to thank all of you that got in touch with me this week and all of you that listened to last week's episode. It seemed that it was really great to have someone like Jay on the episode last week. His story resonated with a lot of you, so I'm really pleased that it did. And I was so thrilled to have him on the podcast. So I'm pleased that you enjoyed it as much as I did. As ever, we've got a fantastic conversation coming up with a drag king, Adam All. I love this conversation with Jen. They are brilliant and I'm really excited to share that episode with you. But before we get into that, as always, I have the listener emails. So let's get stuck in to a couple of those. Hi Susie, I listened to your episode of the Menkind podcast and was excited to hear you talk about this show. I've done little else but listened to all of the back catalogue over the last three days. Thank you so much for such an inclusive space. I especially love the listener stories and felt compelled to share my own. I came out late in life in my early 30s. Prior to that I was living in the closet out of total fear. I grew up in a small northern village in the 90s in a Catholic family where gay people were objects of ridicule. Living in this one-dimensional place and being schooled through Section 28 meant I heard nothing positive about being LGBT and only passing comments that such people were disgusting and perverted. I knew that I was different and that I didn't belong. I knew that village life wasn't enough for me. Yet I felt such guilt because everyone seemed to be content there. All of my family lived there, so what was wrong with me? Why wasn't it enough? I did move away for university, but I didn't belong there either. I had unknowingly chosen a place with a reputation for being pretentious and elitist. As a working class girl, I got ridiculed for my accent and my upbringing daily. It only added to my sense of other. It was only when I left uni and settled into a career in a new place that I really could start focusing on who I was as opposed to who I wasn't. It was a revelation to me. I had my first girlfriend when I was 22 and began the long process of letting go of the shame and guilt of being different. 15 years on, and I think I'm still on that journey. I didn't come out to my family until my early 30s. I was living a double life. It was hard, but it felt the safest way to go about things. My dad, who was very religious, was seriously ill with heart problems, and I was convinced that hearing I was gay would either kill him via a heart attack there and then, or mean that I would have a difficult few months while he adjusted, and that he would die before we ever reconnected. I assumed I'd have to wait to come out until my dad had passed, but after a crushing breakup, I couldn't hide it any longer. Luckily, none of the things I was worried about happened. 
My dad was so supportive and we had 18 months before he died where I could truly be me. Rather than regret waiting so long to come out, I focus on the positive that I was finally able to show him all of me, even if it was only for a short time. Ideally, this would be where the email stops, the classic happy ending, but I still feel isolated at times. I can finally be out and proud, but there aren't the spaces I hoped to be out and proud in. The scene in my city, as in many others I've lived in, are more for gay men and straight hem parties than for lesbians. And not only are there so few lesbian spaces, but the lesbian community itself feels so divided at the moment. I'm a feminist and I feel strongly about equality for women, but the transphobia I hear from the gender critical feminists makes me feel so disconnected from the community. I am proud to be a trans ally and firmly believe that trans women are women. Also, I'm femme and I've been told on so many occasions, but you don't look like a lesbian. I feel I'm always judged by the stereotype I don't fit into rather than who I actually am. I feel like a minority within a minority. I've been single for a few years and I honestly don't feel like that will ever change, which is fine. I'm a strong independent woman and I am more than okay by myself, but surely there must be others out there like me. I'm just not sure where I can find them. Thanks for giving me some hope that some of them are in this space that you have created. Linz. Thank you so much for writing in and sharing your story. I'm so pleased that you got to have that time with your dad where you felt like you could really be yourself. That must have been so lovely to know that he really knew you. And I think you're totally right. The lesbian community does feel quite divided at the moment. But I must say, from the majority of lesbians that I spend time with, certainly all of my friends and ones that I meet, I would say that the majority of us are very uh, trans inclusive and trans allies. And hopefully as time moves on and people learn more and people hopefully go to conversations with more compassion than anything else, that we can hopefully bridge that gap and that we will feel less divided. But all people really need to do is have a little bit more compassion. That's my opinion anyway. And if you listen to this podcast, you're gonna know that's my opinion. But thank you for sharing your story. And I agree, there's, there, there does rarely feel like there's lesbian spaces, but hopefully this podcast is creating that or is certainly creating a queer space where everyone feels welcome. Well, that's what I hope it does anyway. Thank you so much for sending your story in and thank you for listening to the podcast, of course. Okay. Hi, Susie. A friend recently introduced me to the podcast and I've been hooked ever since. I love hearing people's stories and out has quickly become a favorite of mine. Growing up, I had an uncertain relationship with the LGBT plus community. I always felt something of a kinship. I had queer close friends, queer partners, and it always felt like somewhere I belonged. But as a straight man, I knew it wasn't a place for me. I was a good ally, but I didn't want to co-op queer spaces for what? My vanity, because I knew a lot of queer people. Then when I was 20, a close friend of mine came out as trans. I asked what made him trans. Several of our mutual friends were accepting, but entirely lacking in tact. His response was invariably, what makes you your gender? I heard a bunch of people answer that question, but I never did. I just didn't know. Years passed and the answer never came. I tried out they pronouns with a few friends and it felt good. So I told more people and then more. I decided the reason I couldn't say that I was a man was because I wasn't one. So I came out to the world as agender. Then at the start of the year, I finally found an answer to my friend's question. It felt good presenting myself to the world as agender, but a voice inside still told me that I wasn't right. I still wasn't where I needed to be. 
And that little voice is what makes me my gender. That's how I knew that I was a woman. I took a new name, Olivia, and spent the next few months coming out. It's hard sometimes, but I'm also ecstatic to have finally found my most authentic self. Thank you for all that you do, Olivia. Olivia, I'm so pleased that this podcast has um, become a firm favourite of yours so quickly. And uh, I'm pleased that this feels like a, a space for you, which it absolutely is. I think that you're right. I think gender is hard for lots of people. And we're actually going to cover lots of stuff about gender in today's episode. I think it's something that we need to talk about more and hopefully this conversation will be enlightening to some and affirming for others and I hope that you really enjoy it. Let's go to that conversation now with the brilliant Jen, who you might know as Adam All. Adam All is one of the UK's most celebrated drag kings. He has been described as a pioneer of modern drag, rewriting the rules of masculinity, challenging gender stereotypes, perspectives, and redefining drag. Suave, handsome, funny, with an excellent singing voice, Adam All really does have it all. Now, you might have seen Adam All live, or you might have seen their excellent TED Talk. I really highly recommend this. I watched it this week and absolutely loved it. Titled, Using Drag to Deconstruct, Express, and Reclaim My Gender Identity. If you haven't seen that, honestly, you have to have a watch of that. Adam is created by Jen Powell, who is joining me today. Jen is an advocate for drag and is an avid supporter and contributor to the UK's emerging drag scene. Welcome to the show, Jen. I'm very excited to have you. Ah, I'm really excited too. How, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm, I'm great, actually, very well. Um, happy and, yeah, good. Back to, similar to me, performing live. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're yeah. We're up and running. We're going. We. I mean, I was even in. I was at World Pride recently. So where was that this year? Uh, Denmark. It's probably the closest one we're ever going to (laughs) get. Yeah. But yeah, no, that was epic. But yeah, like it's been a bit bonkers actually. Um, been running about all over the place. And how did you find it as a creative person in lockdown? Oh, awful. It it, it Mm. was it was a weird roller coaster because so. We, we're so lucky. We got married in 2019 in the summer and um, postponed our honeymoon till January because January is the graveyard shift if you're an entertainer, unless you're in a panto. Absolutely. So yeah. um, could have been in a panto, wasn't that year, booked a honeymoon. So we went we went off to, um, of all places, Asia. So we were in Japan, Thailand and Cambodia for most of January and then came back um, and my wife went to LA because she's cool. And <laughs> then... Uh, and then uh, I was I had giggity giggity gig and just did all the gigs. Literally, it was what a month and a half, six weeks, and then gone into lockdown. And to be fair, we were shattered. <laughs> and so for the first three to six weeks, we were like, "This is ace. I'm just going to sit here on my sofa and catch up on my Netflix. This is going to be great." And not feel guilty. Yeah, not feel guilty. Because I find that as a performer, if I'm not like on my way to a gig writing for something or like pitching oh, yeah. an idea I'm like well I don't deserve any of this <laughs> it's all gonna yeah, go away yeah. no it's like why am I still asleep I should be up creating things yeah. what is wrong with me um yeah learning to rest is like one of the hardest the hardest things but like yeah we rested and then yeah the, the panic started to creep in mm. and the panic was equal the equal side of like what will happen to the drag community so much has changed we've done so much there's been so much progress what is going to happen now when nothing is happening but at the same time 
I should be doing things. Mm. I should be learning how to handstand. Why am I not getting really fit? (laughs) I should be making 27,000 costumes. Like order things, order things, order things. Yeah. Not more wine, not more wine. (laughs) Like constantly just in the end, I I had such a massive panic that I um, got a big um, notebook out and just wrote down all of the major things that I wanted to complete Mm -hmm. during lockdown. But when I wrote that list, we had three months, not 18. Yeah, right. So I've done maybe half of them. <laughs> sure, the sure. 18th. I mean, I think that's pretty good going, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was quite neat. So let's, uh, I think it's quite nice when we begin sort of chronologically. Did you grow up in Winchester? Yeah. And what were you like as a, as, as, as a child? Were you already sort of breaking down gendered stereotypes? Well, I was always boyish and I didn't really understand much about um, gender. When I was very small, I think I was, I, I just, I looked very boyish. I, I behaved like a boy. I liked, I wanted to do the things the boys were doing. Um, my parents even pretended I was a boy to visit Santa so that I would get a boy's lucky dip toy instead of a girl's lucky dip toy. But to be fair, the boys' lucky dip toys were considerably better in every way. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I think a, a working set of walkie-talkies is far better than a solid piece of plastic which looks roughly like a hairdryer. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, okay, and mine these batteries, but hey, that became a thing. I definitely was very boyish and I was mistaken for a boy a lot, a lot, a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was a problem. Like to the point that we were taught a little bit of French when we were in primary school. And like the only thing I ever learned to say was je ne suis pas un garçon, which literally means I am not a boy. And it was the only thing I ever needed to say because no one ever asked me any other questions. (laughs) So I like literally just always looked like a boy. Um, And I did judo and I wanted to play the saxophone. I don't know if any of these are gendered. And wanted to be on the football team, not the netball team. And I wasn't allowed. And... Yeah, so basically, um, there was a lot about me that didn't seem to fit with what the other AFAB people were doing. For anyone listening, what do you mean by AFAB? Assigned female at birth, so I don't know how they identify now, but at school we were all girls. Yes, yeah. Were you aware at that young age that the sort of reaction from people was... uh, You said like you weren't allowed to be on the football team. Were you aware that people weren't sort of sure where to place you or were trying quite hard to place you in this place that felt wrong i kind of i kind of understood um that people found it strange and i because i i got a lot like um going to get shoes for example the the assistant would would have to ask my mum is your child a boy or a girl and i know that it made my mum very embarrassed um and it it, that made it very awkward for me because i knew that although my mum encouraged me to do the things that I wanted and wear the clothes that I wanted. My parents were always very supportive hmm. of me in that way. Um, to the outside world, I was an enigma. And, and it just made things it just made things quite strange and quite strained. And I think that um, that I did develop a bit of a complex about how I needed to look and how I should look, which kind of echoed into a lot of the decisions I made later on. But yeah, no, as a kid, I, I just I was just boyish. And did that continue into your teenage years. I, I know that as, as a teenager, I wanted to do, I wanted to be more boyish, and I'm saying that in inverted commas, but I remember thinking, no, no, I'm going to have to grow my hair now. <laughs> I'm going to have to 
sort of display this feminine femininity that everyone around me is expecting yeah I mean I kind of I kind of sort of maybe tried a little bit but I think that was more yeah I suppose teenage years I mean I came out young I was 14 when I came out oh that's very um, brave yeah plus during section 28 because yeah when I went to school, it was the year that it came into effect. Mm-hmm. So primary school, I, I, I went to primary school at 88. So that was the year it came in. Yep. And I left college in 2002. So it was like the year before they dropped it. Mm. So it was like the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. It was completely shafted. Thanks very much, Thatcher. Um, Were you aware of Section 28 as no, a teenager? No, that was the thing that people yeah. didn't understand. Like, I think a lot of people didn't don't really realise that if you were a kid in that time, nobody told us about Section 28 because they assumed we knew, but of course we didn't. We were tiny children when it happened. Mm. There's like no way of us knowing why the teachers are being so prejudiced or why the kids are allowed to call us really homophobic slurs, Mm -hmm. why the police don't protect us, why we have to hide. Like it didn't make any sense. The only thing that made sense was to accept that there was something wrong with me that I was an alien from outer space and that I was broken and that I was dysfunctional. And I mean, that was the only, that was the only way you could, you could piece the pieces together for it to, to actually make real sense mm. until I came out and met a queer community. Was there a queer community in Winchester? Um, so the first, the first place I went to was an out, it was, it was an out youth support group. Cause that's how bad section 28 was. Hmm. I used to go there every other Sunday evening and it was held in a, it's like a, like a mental health space, like a therapy space. And it's called face to face top top of Winchester. And there was, and it was just, it was for youth. It was for sort of school age kids sort of learning about themselves. Um, And you would only really go if your parents would like drop you or you could get there without them knowing. And um, the, so there were a couple of older queer people from the community who would, sit in and essentially chaperone and it was teas and coffees and soft drinks and sweets and biscuits and and magazines so that's when i would have started hearing about sort of pink news and Hmm. and and diva magazine yeah that kind of thing would have like started to to appear in my world but so they would have been my first role models and i think i think uh, very illegally got snuck into a gay bar when i was about 16 um but hilariously went back and performed in that same gay bar just actually very recently for the first time which was really weird um but really cathartic but no yeah so it was yes there wasn't really a scene until I went to college and I think after just after college I had a gap year and then there was a then there was a gay bar in the bottom of town um which I was basically I basically moved in right (laughs) but anywhere else other than being at home really yeah just be out of the house and be away from that weird cut with a knife atmosphere of like everybody knows what you are <laughs> sort of feeling where were you feeling that home really i think it, i think i think a lot of us i think a lot of us go through this process and i think i think parents have a really tough time they don't have a support group mm-hmm. there's nothing to tell them what's right and wrong there's nothing to support them through a process like that especially when there's so much negative press going around and um nothing for us at school they're left with everything Hmm. and no language and no history and no way of helping and we were brought up being taken to cv church so that whole world was circling around there as well this whole sort of pressure of you know it's not right sort of thing and i didn't really i tried i tried a little bit to talk to my parents about who i was 
but it made them so uncomfortable that in the end clamming up was really probably the better option so going to a gay bar and just having the freedom to be myself was like yeah so as soon as I was 17 I learned to drive got a car and drove myself to any gay bar to sit there with a coca-cola at the bar just looking desperate <laughs> trying to talk to people <laughs> well I don't think it, it I mean there is an element of, of of desperation but I don't mean it in in that sort of like oh god how desperate like but I mean like that desperation to find someone that is mm. like you that isn't just in a magazine and isn't in a film um or isn't a pop star you know where you're just sort of where you can sort of look someone in the eye and go are you the same as me mm. by seeing you is it going to affirm that I'm normal yeah and actually, that was the main fire behind when I became a drag king, when I started performing as a drag mm. king, why I, why I wanted to start a drag king night. That was the main fire behind that. Mm-hmm. So I run a night, it's called Boy Box, it's all drag kings. And the literally the reason I wanted to do it was because I wanted other drag kings to come to this night so I could look them in the face and be like, you're like me, we're the same. We had the same, we do the same thing. Mm-hmm. People, I'm not weird. Look, there's another one. <laughs> so let's talk about Adam Orn then. When was he created? I was about to say conceived, but that sounds like you've actually given yeah. birth to him. Well, I might have done. <laughs> Uh, so I started doing drag. Well, it's weird, isn't it? Because when I was little, I did everything boyish that I could humanly do. So even when I dressed up for fancy dress competitions, I was Peter Pan or a pirate or a spaceman or even Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Hell, Bambi was a boy. So like every outfit that my parents even made for me or I made for myself, I was always, always, and literally born to be Peter Pan. I mean, for goodness sake, come on. So I kind of like, I can't say that that was drag. But I consciously dressed in drag for the first time at 17 at a New Year's Eve party. And everyone thought I was completely insane. And that's fine, because maybe I was. And it was, that, that was for fun. That wasn't a themed night or anything. You just thought, I want to dress like I this. I was just like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put like a whole thing on. I think I may have seen something on the TV. I think it was just after Tipping the Velvet had been out. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to put this costume on and I'm going to go. Yeah. I'm going to see if a character happens. Like, it didn't really. I just kind of... Yeah, I just got pissed with my mates. But I, did, I, I then started to put it on more seriously and go to events and things. And I and I I kind of went to a, a, a ball where you strut around in your costume and maybe you win a prize. And I won a couple of prizes and that was great. But I didn't actually fully get on the stage properly under the full name with the full show until I was, until 2008. And um, that was terrifying. So first of all, obviously drag queens are something that are so sort of in the, uh, the, I was about to say zeitgeisty, but then maybe they've been zeitgeisty for a long time. But specific, you know, I'd say now with stuff like Drag Race and different things that people are way more, they have way more knowledge of mm. of drag queens. And obviously, you know, going back to things like Paul O'Grady, but obviously like male impersonators have been around for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. Like Music Hall. Yeah. So were you aware that this drag king world existed and did it even exist? 12 years ago so yeah i mean it did but not so much here in the uk like right. and, and i'm saying not so much because it did but i didn't necessarily have connections with it but mm-hmm. yeah like i think my first introduction to the idea of a, of a male impersonator or a drag king or something like that probably would have been some fleeting tv appearance of some for want of a better word very masculine female person mm-hmm. dressing in a, a pinstripe suit like a 
or and a trilby hat that was like probably a, and you just fleetingly zip past them and and oh they were there but you know it's a thing and so i kind of I was conscious but like really understanding male impersonation as a performance art would have been yes tipping the velvet when that was put as a tv adaption and then yeah with the male impersonators as the lead so then yeah you would have a much more better understanding of, of what was happening with that but um in terms of an actual drag king community when i started in 2008 i didn't know of many and i had think i'd met like i met some other drag kings at a drag king night in brighton the night before my first performance and i'd been rehearsing that first performance for about six weeks so i literally didn't know anyone mm. and then i last minute heard of this night and turned up in my costume just to see if i could like warm up for the following night and be like oh look let's get some like last minute ideas and it was literally like the last time they ever did that event <laughs> like, it was like oh no so the community was really disparate really um disconnected really really um small fractured and very 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 much underground mm -hmm but we weren't really sort of a mainstream thing and it was very much kept to the lesbian bars as if somehow we can't be entertaining for other people and is there much do you work a lot with drag queens i know that your wife is is, is would, would she consider herself a drag queen because i know that she's yeah. sort of the makeup and the yeah yeah, yeah she did for a really long time. I think she kind of does now. I think there's a there's a there's a sort of push for female drag queens. Yeah, I mean, I think she's fantastic. She's an amazing drag queen. Um, yeah, I do work with quite a few drag queens. I'd say. I think um, quite often I'm I'm quite I'm quite a handy little tick box um, for events that need to look like they're being diverse, which is lovely. Um, so yeah, that I <laughs> I get a lot of that. I'm often everybody's first drag king. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, it's, it's quite a standard thing. I just have to sort of include at the beginning of my set, like a, a short explanation um, of what a drag king is or like, hello, I'm a drag king. Just look, look, look at all their little eyeballs and see if there's, there's nodding or there's <laughs> confusion and then maybe elaborate slightly. Um, but yeah, no, lots of, lots of drag queens. I, I really enjoy working with drag queens. I really love drag queens. Mm. And I think uh, there is a weird little misconception that has been in the past. That there's some sort of rivalry or, or some sort of discord and there isn't at all. It's all drag, it's all love. And so was there like a moment when you got on stage as Adam that you were like, oh, this clicks. Like, this is um, what I want to be doing. This is how I want to be being creative. I don't know. I think... It's a, it's a, that's a, it's a really weird thing because I only kind of worked out in, in lockdown that I'm a raving extrovert. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, <laughs> I was just not raised that way. And, uh, a lot of myself makes more sense now. But I realized that because of how difficult I found being without people not being in the scene and for, for want of better things, if, for not having an audience and not having that moment. And I, I, I didn't cope with that very well at all. And I think that I, I I didn't, I hid the fact that I wanted to be, or denied myself the fact that I wanted to be on stage when I was little, because, because the idea of being on stage was so connected to how I looked and how people perceived me that there was this enormous barrier to overcome before I even opened my mouth. So I played sax in a jazz band. If I got a solo and stood in front of the audience, I knew before anyone listened to a single note that I played, they would be thinking, is that a boy or a girl? And that really threw me, like really threw my confidence to the point that I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it at all. And I refused to believe that I ever wanted to be on stage in front of people and people looking at me. I just refused to believe it. 
And I think it wasn't until I really sort of settled into knowing my chops, really getting my, getting my show to a confidence base where I could say, Oh yeah, I can do an hour. That's when I started to realize that I really, really want this before then it was more like, I have to do this, even though I hate it. (laughs) It scares the shit out of me. And then I, and then I became more confident and now it's, yeah, I really, I really want this. When you say you felt like you had to do it, was it because you did being Adam give you something that in being Adam, you can sort of say, this is exactly who I am for this moment. I'm being this sort of a masculine figure, but then also fucking with that a little bit. Like, was it because it was, I guess, on your terms? Yeah. When I step on stage as Adam, I don't have to worry that the audience doesn't know who or what I am. Firstly, it doesn't matter. Like if I'm a, if I'm a bloke in a, in a pink suit and everyone's going, what? that's kind of half the joke. So that's okay that that doesn't necessarily make sense at the start. Um, but also I have the space to talk, talk about why I've made those decisions and what that's about. Um, but also there's never any misgendering. There's never any misgendering there at all. I walk out as Adam, it's he, him. Everybody knows that there's no question. There's no problem. Get on with the, you know, get on with the song. There's, there's no, there's no barrier. There's no stop. People say that you, when you, when you do something like that, you obviously you're acting a role that you're hiding behind the character. And I, I don't see that in drag at all. I, I see myself finally releasing the maximum level masculine that I've always had inside me that I've had to sort of crush slightly to appease friends, relatives, people around me so that I don't make other people feel uncomfortable. And in that space, I don't have to do that. I can turn it up to the max and exaggerate it and say, Hey, I know what you see. And I know that you can, you see this mannerism and you think, Oh, that's masculine. I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to perform it for you now, even more than I do it naturally to the point that, you know, that I know that, you know, that I know that's why it's funny. (laughs) Yeah. And do you find because you have that outlet on stage, you not a less aware, but when you're saying about friends, relatives, people around you, does it sort of release something in you? because you're able to to be that person somewhere else? I think it has. I think the journey's been um, peppered by various relationships. The most important one, my wife, um, I've been with her for 10 years now, and she she's changed my perspective on almost everything, but, but myself as well. And, and being with her has meant finding a comfort in myself. And I think that is partly my drag journey as well happening at the same time but i've never really felt comfortable being feminine until i was with her and she gave me the space to try it and maybe fail at it and and maybe put a dress on and not not feel that it suits me and that not to be funny that to be oh no this doesn't suit you let's try something else oh this is nice and for that not to be oh now you look pretty and to not use language that makes me feel uncomfortable She's got this amazing way of, of helping me feel strong in my femininity instead of vulnerable. So I wonder if like having the release of Adam has aided that significantly or whether she's aided that significantly and that's aided Adam. I don't know, but hey, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter how you get there, does it? <laughs> um, I know that you identify as non-binary and has that been something that you, that your sort of drag journey and your gender identity journey have they sort of overlapped were you already out as non-binary pre-dating adam i think i was out as non-binary before adam Hmm. i discovered the term 
gender neutral at university when a friend offered me some literature on it. Um, so that was quite a few years before I started performing properly. But I had been dressing in drag, mm. but not like under the name Adam. When you say dressing in drag, you mean in a performative way rather than just putting on a suit? Yeah. Yeah. For me, dressing in drag is, is an exaggerated gender, gender performance. Like it's a, it's a costume, essentially. Um, but being a drag king, just getting on stage and rocking it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I definitely came out knowing that I wasn't, yeah, I was in sort of like a fluid gender state that mm. I didn't identify as male or female. When I was at university and it was sort of terms that I used, I didn't press it on anyone. It was just there for me mm -hmm. to know who I was um, before, before Adam. So it's been a weird one because I definitely, before I knew that that was even a thing, I definitely sort of looked at the world of trans identity and, and felt very strongly that it was calling to me. There was something there but I, it never really completely clicked for me. Mm. Sometimes I wish it had, because it would have been less complicated, but maybe more complicated, who knows? But mm. I, I don't know what would have happened if it had been that journey. But that's, I mean, I had to find, I had to find my own path. And I was only 18 and I think I just went, oh, I'm only 18, I, I'm gonna look more into this. And considering there's no literature and no support network at the time, it took a lot longer to find those things to learn who I was. But yeah, definitely non-binary first, and then Adam later. And it feels like at the moment that there is, as you mentioned earlier in our chat, you were saying, you know, it felt like lots of work was happening, like pre-lockdown and like all of this stuff was happening. And then, and, and drag was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, you know, the world's on pause. Oh, oh my God, is mm -hmm. it going to go away? It feels like drag's having a real moment. And, mm. you know, obviously the, the biggest thing is, is drag race. And I feel like the drag scene have very mixed opinions on that from people that I speak to does it feel sort of an exciting time to be in drag and also does it feel like drag kings are sort of finally getting some more of the you know the bite of the cherry of like the big hmm. drag stuff yeah I mean things we've been building for a long time mm -hmm. and yeah drag races is, is is this juggernaut in our community that's doing actually a lot of good for a lot of people mm -hmm. um it's also it's got it's, it's got strong negative sides to it and there's there's a real backlash from some of the fans of the show that can be quite aggressive towards people who they don't like and stuff like that online yeah that's um, awful yeah and i think it happens with lots of things um but no i yeah it's, it's weird it, it's like it's like lockdown lockdown was the, the ultimate blue balls it just like you know we were really climbing and then mm. what, what shit um but no, we've come out of the end of lockdown. I think a lot of really positive things happened in, in lockdown to do with drag performance. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a real strong push for um, more visibility for a much broader variety of drag and much more diverse lineups mm -hmm. um, to the point that it, you literally couldn't put on an online show unless you were you were trying, at yes. least trying to have a diverse lineup. Yes. You had all white cis male queens mm -hmm. that's that's it you, then you would you just you got cancelled essentially it's you know similar things happening in comedy and has yeah. been happening in comedy for a while which is late but thank god it's yeah. happening yeah exactly and i think that where everything was confined to online no one could get away with it anymore mm. you can't just do a show in a pub anymore if you're going to put it online and it becomes international you expect international feedback and that feedback is not just going to be your mates that come down your pub. Mm. So I think there was a lot of learning that happened very, very fast. 
Um, and that was painful for a lot of people, but the progress has been really, really exciting. Meaning that now that we're back to live shows, the live shows are now being more inclusive as well. As much as we can maybe hope at these beginning stages of moving forward. And I think that's that's really positive and really exciting. So um, I think that there is, there is a, it is a magical time to be part of the drag community. Um, and I think kings are definitely on the rise. Mm. So it's cleanly in the door, possibly even both feet um, and some elbows. And it's happening slowly. Um, and I think it's happening in a really good way, but it is still a fight. It is still like a claws and teeth yeah. fight. Um, but I think that there's no denying that the king community has a hell of a lot to offer. Mm. I think in a time when we really need to talk about well, for me to talk about masculinity and to talk about how we see masculinity not just in men but in people who are masculine yeah like what kind of negative connotation people constantly place on that mm -hmm. um that's something i'm really passionate about and i've started talking about a lot in my shows so it's it's a really good time to talk about positive masculinity absolutely do you feel like uh when you're on those bills because I think maybe some people and not all people but if you're going to a drag show I feel like people would potentially just be expecting some cis gay guys being really funny drag queens but I bet when you go out people are kind of like oh and then actually thrilled that there's something a bit different I hope so I like to think so I do try and cherry pick the acts that I do for yeah. the audience mm -hmm. so I have some stuff which is a bit easier to swallow um and stuff which is a bit more political and stuff which is a bit more tailored to um a drag king fan base so like basically half the audience are drag kings anyway um so i kind of i have a couple of fun 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 things one of the my favorite things to do is, is my night medley which is um where i'm dressed as a knight and all the songs are about the night and um it's just silly but because it's so silly and such an easy concept to get it actually doesn't matter what gender i am underneath the costume they just understand that it's a costume and it's placed in a drag context and they say drag king and that's a, that's enough you know some people will twig yeah that my body doesn't include a penis underneath and some people won't and that actually doesn't matter so relevant yeah they just have fun with the silly gags and off we go you know um sometimes that's enough absolutely and if people are listening to this and they want to come and see you live or they want to find out more about watching and supporting the drag king community or maybe becoming a drag king um, where can, <laughs> where can, uh, you can't see this because it's an audio uh, platform, which you know, because you're listening to this, but Jen just did sort of kind of, would you say, what would you say? It's like evil fingers, like, hmm. Enticing fingers. Yeah, plotting, plotting fingers. But yeah, if they're thinking about this, what would you tell them to do? Or how would you, or where would you tell them to go? I think uh, well, the best place is if you want to follow me, uh, my Instagram, I'm on there all the time, um, Adamal underscore drag. It's, um, I put all of my gigs on there um, and I do lots of stories and stuff to let people know where I'm at and what I'm doing. I do have a website. I never keep it up to date. I really should do that. Um, Adamal.co.uk is pretty easy. Um, and, but the boy box that I run is, is happening at the end of the month and we are at the glory. Um, one of the best ways to get involved with the drag king community is to sign up for man up competition, which has actually just finished, but we'll be starting again in the new year. Um, which is a, in the Europe's biggest drag king competition. And you don't need to be an experienced drag king to enter at all. There's an enormous variety of different kinds of people coming from different kinds of um, performance art from burlesque to comedy, to juggling, to you name it. Um, 
uh, yeah, you don't have to be have been a drag king before at all. You can just like hop on in with a drag king act. Um, and many of those have been known to steal the prize at the end as well. Because people so, love authenticity. Yeah, they do. People love it. authenticity. And yeah. and so the, the last question, I know that you've listened to the pod, so you know what I'm about to ask, but um, oh, God, the yeah. last question yeah. I ask is always, <laughs> Uh, you know, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? And I'm sort of wondering about that version of Jen that was going to face to face, the or maybe the the version that was sitting in a gay bar, desperately looking for someone to look them in the eyes and say, "I'm the same as you." If you could uh, get in touch with them or someone that's feeling very similar at the moment, what would you say? And I've thought about this so much, and I've probably answered this question quite a few times. It's hard to know how to um, prepare someone for the journey that's about to happen when the journey is so twisting and turning. I think I think I would say, stop clipping your own wings. I would say, stop thinking about everything that you do and constantly watching yourself. Get back inside your own head and look out of your own eyes at the world around you rather than repeatedly checking the way that you're sitting, the way you're holding your hands, the way you're pulling that expression or, you know, okay, be careful about the people around you, but you don't need to worry about what you look like because everyone else is already doing that. <laughs> They'll probably tell you. So um, <laughs> you don't need to actually think about that anymore. Think about how you can be the best you and do the things you want to do because that's in the end, you won't realize it, but you're learning all the skills you need for later. Perfect. That was the brilliant Adam All. Uh, you can find out everything about what they are up to at www.adamall.co.uk and check out their showreel and have a look at their videos on YouTube. I think you'll really enjoy them. Uh, I will see you next week. Uh, just as a heads up, if you enjoy uh, my podcasts, you might enjoy my podcast with the fabulous Tom Allen. It's called Like-Minded Friends and it's uh, lots of fun and it's very silly and it's coming out every Wednesday. So uh, maybe subscribe and listen to that one as well. As always, you can get in touch with me. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com and I will speak to you next week. Mm-hmm.